Guilt and shame are unpleasant words, aren't they? They're difficult words, they're hard words, they're even dark words. Guilt, shame. And we know because we've all lived with these thorns in our sides and splinter in our eyes. Indeed, there are some here today that could be very much weighed down by guilt and plagued by shame. For despite our efforts to deny and suppress or to purge and to expel, guilt simmer and shame lurks. But I'm also sure that there are people here today who have a freedom from guilt, a release from shame that is deep, life-giving and ongoing. And the good news is that there is a freedom from shame and guilt that we can all experience as we look to and draw from Christ and his work on the cross. And that's going to be our focus this morning. How can we gain freedom from guilt and shame? So let's pray as we come to God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for an opportunity to spend time in your word. All of us carry guilt and shame to greater or lesser extent, and we thank you that your will is that we have a great freedom from these. We pray that your spirit will make this real to us this morning through Christ our Lord. Amen. Now, guilt was never God's plan from the beginning. They were foreign to the Garden of Eden before the great calamity, before our rebellion, before the fall. For as Eve wiped the forbidden fruits juice from her mouth, guilt and shame fell over her like a dark shadow. And this was a darkness that followed Eve to her dying day. And as Adam followed in Eve's footsteps, as he too took the fruit, two more shadows of guilt and shame were born. Yes, they were spawned, they were born in our rebellion. And because of this, they become the default setting for humanity, as we too resist and rebel against God and his ways. For to live outside Eden is to live with the twin shadows of guilt and shame. And though we'd be loved to get rid of them, they just won't leave us alone. However, although guilt and shame are twins, born moments apart in the garden, they are not identical. They are closely related, and where you find one, the other often lurks, but they are different. And knowing the difference between guilt and shame can help us get free of their, their, their grip, their grasp in our lives. So there's two differences that I want to explore first before we move on how to be free them. So what's the first difference between guilt and shame? Well, firstly, guilt is tied to an event. I did something bad, whereas guilt eternalizes this and says, I am a bad person. Do you see the difference? Guilt is tied to an event. So let's say a young person shoplifts and is caught. Their guilt is clear. In their hand, they have a moro bar that they stole from the dairy. Their guilt is clear, isn't it? You can't argue with that. That's one thing. It's another thing when guilt whispers in, because I did this, I am a bad person. There's a difference, isn't there? I did a bad thing, I am a bad person. Notice the progression. I did something wrong as guilt, and that leads to the thinking, I'm a bad person, and this is why I need to hide, and this is why I'm not good enough, and that is the evil work of shame. So, if I betray a confidence, that's an event. 
I feel guilty, and rightly so, for I've crossed the line, I've done wrong, and I've let my friend down. So I've been a bad friend, and I feel the shame, and I tell myself I'm a bad person. Or maybe I steal money from work, this is the event. I feel guilty, and rightly so, for I've crossed the line, and I've done bad. And because I know I've been a bad employee, I say to myself, I'm a bad person. Shame comes in. Or if I betray my spouse and have an affair, then that affair is the event. I feel guilty and rightly so. I've crossed the line. I've done wrong. Because I've been a bad spouse, I feel shame. And I say to myself, I am a bad person. So you see the difference between guilt and shame. They're very closely related, very intertwined. But it's the difference between saying I did a bad thing to I'm a bad person. So guilt is due to an outside event and shame internalises us, convincing us that I'm a bad person. So that's the first difference between guilt and shame. Now the second difference between guilt and shame is that guilt is fixed and shame is transferable. Now what do I mean by this? Well, if someone engages in serious long-term fraud in a court, they can be found guilty and imprisoned, but not their spouse and not their children. Only the person who participated in the event is guilty. So if five people commit a robbery, then five people can be found guilty in the law, but not their family. They can't be found guilty. However, if it comes to that person who committed fraud or is in prison, their spouse and their children can experience shame because shame is transferable even to the innocent. We'll take another example. Let's say someone is raped and the offender is caught and convicted and put into jail and that person is guilty. It's clear, isn't it? But then the person who's raped often feels a deep, deep shame even though they don't deserve it, even though they're innocent, because shame can be transferable. So those are the two differences, really, between guilt and shame. Closely linked emotions, very powerful, very strong, can be crippling emotions. But guilt is from an event where shame internalises it. Guilt is fixed, it's connected to that event, where shame can be transferred to the innocence. Now, before we move on to what the Bible has to say about being free from guilt and shame, there's an important note that we need to make. Guilt and shame have a healthy function, just like pain. Now, how does pain serve a healthy function? Well, if I rest my hand on a hot stove, pain receptors automatically jerk my hand away, and the ongoing pain tells me I need to, I need to run my hand under cold water. So pain serves a very healthy purpose with our physical bodies. It alerts us to trouble, to danger, to difficulty, and makes us do something about it. Now, of course, the whole point of pain is to get rid of it, isn't it? It's not like that we encourage pain to come and rejoice in the pain, no. It's the body's way of saying, get this sorted. Guilt and shame serves a similar healthy function when it comes to our relationships and our emotional life. When we feel guilt and when we feel shame, that's our emotional life telling us, 
there's something here you need to sort out. So guilt and shame serve a healthy function, but of course it's when we get blown out of proportion or in a very unhealthy way that we need to address it. So just keep that in the back of the mind as we strive to be free from guilt and shame. So what does the Bible teach about this? Well, it starts off by teaching something quite unusual that's not intuitive and is not obvious. For God's word is clear that when I sin against someone else and I deserve to feel guilty, I sin against God first and then against the other person. So if I'm sitting in the bus on an aisle and someone walks past and I stick my foot out and trip them up, I sin against God first because his his law is very clear. Don't do it, Douglas. But I also sin against that other person who probably will turn around and clock me. (laughs) Can you see? And now that's not intuitive. You think if you trip someone up on the bus, then you get what you deserve and you sort it out. But because of God's law and God's expectation, when we sin against someone else, we sin against God first. So let's see how the Bible deals with guilt and shame. Now, the answer will be of no surprise to many of us here. The key from freedom to guilt and shame, according to the Bible, is God's forgiveness. That's how we are free from guilt and shame. Though applied slightly different to the two different shadows, we experience freedom from guilt and shame because of God's forgiveness that Christ earned on the cross. Forgiveness is the key. So where do we start when it comes to forgiveness in the Bible? Well, we start with Jesus and Mark chapter 2, the beginning of his ministry with one of his more well-known miracles. In Mark chapter 2, four men dig a hole in a roof to lower a paralyzed friend down into the house. Now, why would they do this? Well, they want to see Jesus, and Jesus is in the house But the crowds are so great that they can't even get to the door, let alone through it. And so as the paralyzed man is being lowered before Jesus, he sees their faith. And then he says something most unusual. And we pick this up in Mark chapter 2, verse 5. So Jesus is seeing the man, the paralyzed man, being lowered down before him. And he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now this is both surprising and offensive. It's surprising because the paralyzed man wants to be healed. He wants to walk again. His sin isn't his major focus at that moment. So it's a surprising thing for Jesus to say. But it's also an offensive thing for Jesus to say because the religious leaders are nearby and they say to themselves this, Why does this fellow talk like this? He's blaspheming. And who can forgive sins but God alone? Who can forgive sins but God alone. Now it's Jesus' response here that is most helpful for us as we build a foundation for forgiveness. And Jesus' response can be found in verse 8. Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man? Your sins are forgiven? Or say, get up and take your mat and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, 
took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. Wonderful miracle, isn't it? But what are we seeing here? Well, Jesus is using a miracle to establish his authority to forgive sins. He's establishing his authority. Now, any person could go up to a paralyzed man and say, I have authority to forgive your sins. And everyone who would hear that would say, well, who are you to say that? You know? But Jesus says, well, to prove it, I'm going to heal this paralyzed man and make him walk. So Jesus connects this amazing miracle with his authority to forgive sins. And that opens the door for us just a little to receive forgiveness. Because on the day, it was just the man healed that was forgiven his sins. It wasn't open to everyone yet. It would take a greater miracle, the greatest of miracle, before we all had access to God's wonderful forgiveness. And, and that miracle was Christ's death and resurrection on the cross. The miracle of the healed man, the paralyzed man now healed, opens up the door is a foreshadow, a foretaste of the forgiveness that we would receive. And so, let's go to the cross and see what the forgiveness that Christ earned looks like. How do we understand what he did on the cross? Well, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, Paul gives us a legal explanation of what happened and why we are forgiven. There's different ways of looking at what Christ did on the cross. And one of the ways is to look at it like a legal, a courtroom, a forensic sort of perspective. And this is what Colossians chapter 2 says about what happened on the cross. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. You see, we all fall short of God's expectations. We all fall short of God's expectations of the written code that we find in the Bible. Not one of us can keep the Ten Commandments, let alone all the many others. So we have this code that has lists and lists of regulations, and we can't keep them. They accuse us in the court of law. This means that the fault of every human is to be found guilty in that court before God's judgment. And there we are without hope. However, the good news of the gospel is because Christ was obedient to his heavenly Father and he went to the cross, the regulations that were used against us, that accuse us, were nailed to the cross. And with those regulations, our sin was also nailed to the cross. Which meant when Christ was raised from the grave, our sin stayed in the ground. And with them, our guilt and shame. Our guilt and shame lies buried in the tomb while Christ rose from the grave. Because of the resurrection, the law was satisfied, our sins buried and forgiveness offered to all who believe. And that is the basis of our forgiveness. When it came to the paralyzed man, Jesus made it clear that he had authority to forgive sins. With them rising from the dead... The work was done. The legal judgment was proclaimed that all those who look to Jesus are not guilty. So how do we apply this to our guilt and to our shame? How do we apply this to our guilt and then shame? Well, let's first look at guilt. And it's all to do with the idea of 
justification. Justification is crucial here. Now, what does justification mean? Well, justification, this is how I remember it. It's just as if I never sinned. It's the legal pronouncement. The judge has, we're standing in the dock. We're about to be pronounced guilty. But our defense lawyer is Jesus. And he says to the judge, I have paid in full for Douglas's sin. And the judge says, Douglas, you're not guilty. Justification, just as if I never sinned. And that's the basis for our freedom of guilt because we have been proclaimed innocent by Christ our Lord. So it's a little bit like this, if I can imagine this is a bit of a timeline. And before I'm a Christian, I'm guilty. I'm guilty as I move through life. And then I meet Christ and ask him to be Lord of my life. And at that moment, I am declared not guilty. So then as I move through my Christian life, I continue to move through and grow closer to God and the proclamation over me is not guilty, not guilty, justified. And that's the declaration that each one of us has when we become Christians. Now, though we are justified, just as if I never sinned, after conversion, none of us are perfect. (laughs) None of us are perfect. We all fall short. And that's a problem, isn't it? God's declared us innocent, and then the next moment we go out and fall short. But God has a provision, a wonderful provision, a way to continue to be forgiven, to continue to be free of guilt. And that provision is found in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now, this was written to a Christian church, to Christians like you and I, which means that after conversion, if we sin, we can confess, and God is faithful and will forgive and cleanse us. And that's how we stay free from guilt. So we move away, we're guilty, we're guilty, we're guilty. At salvation, we're declared not guilty. I then move in my Christian life and I fall short, so I confess and God forgives me and I'm not guilty. And that's how we continue walking with God. With this verse, 1 John 1, 9, keeping us free from guilt. That's how it works. A Christian isn't someone who never sins. A Christian is one who, when they do fall short... They look to Christ, they confess, and they know that Christ has forgiven them and washed them with his blood, and they start again. So there's this healthy cycle. Christians don't deny that they fall short, but they're dependent on an ongoing personal daily walk with Christ that involves saying they're sorry to God. So that's how we can be free from guilt, justified. But what about... Freedom from shame. How are we free from shame? Now, it's still the same basis, Christ's forgiveness earned on the cross, but the application is different. The process to be free from shame is when we submit to a process called sanctification. Sanctification is when the Holy Spirit works on us day by day to mould us to be more like Jesus. Sanctification, I'll give you an example before we apply it to shame. So someone might have had a trouble with anger. 
they become a Christian and they're converted and they're justified just as if they'd never sinned? Does that mean they wake up the next morning and are completely free from their problem with anger? Generally not. I mean, God's a miraculous God, and now and again you do hear of people who are miraculously saved from that. But most of the time, anger is an issue that the Holy Spirit has to work on that person over a period of months, even years. And as they continue in their Christian life, the Holy Spirit helps them work through their issue with anger so they become a lot more calm and a lot more reasonable. And all of us are in the process of sanctification. All of us have rough edges that the Holy Spirit is working on. And shame can be one of them. And it's because we have to rewire our thinking. Because our thinking so long has been, I am a bad person. I am a bad person. It's been reinforced on some of us for years, in our family context maybe, in our marriages, in the work, in school, wherever. And so God has to rewire our thinking, our shame, I am a bad person, to... This, I am a child of God, dearly loved, accepted, and forgiven. And that's what the Holy Spirit wants to do to each one of us. And that's how he can heal us from shame that we carry and that feeling that we are a bad person. And how do we engage with that? Well, just like... You want to be free from guilt, then you take those passages in the Bible that declare our freedom from sin and death, and that helps you understand you are free from guilt. We do the same when it comes to shame. 1 John 2, 28. Now, dear children, continue in him, continue in Christ, so that when he appears you may be confident and unashamed, without shame, before his coming. And what this verse is saying is that as we continue in Christ, he will heal us from our shame. So that when he appears, we won't hang our head and say, I'm a bad person. But we'll be able to look Jesus in the eye and say, I am a child of God, dearly loved, accepted, and forgiven, without shame in the presence of our Heavenly Father. So as we continue in Christ, as this Bible verse says, as we meditate and reflect on those wonderful passages in the Bible that talk about our freedom from guilt and release from shame, the Holy Spirit makes it real in our heart. It bubbles up. There's this moment of, aha, yes, it is true, as God heals our ragged and, and scrappy hearts. You see, Jesus took on our guilt so that we can be free from guilt ourselves. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Isn't that amazing? God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Christ took our guilt upon him. Why? So that we would be guilty no longer. And Christ also carries our shame so that we have no shame as we stand before him. Isaiah 53 from verse 3. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. He carried our sorrows, our infirmities, our shame. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. By his wounds we are healed from guilt and shame. Praise God that each one of us can be completely, 100% free. 
as we finish, a couple of things to note. Guilt and shame are very, very closely related. And I've used some distinctions here to help us work through what it is to be free from them both. But one of the things that you'll notice is that as you work on one, say guilt, then God will work on the shame side and that will naturally or supernaturally also decrease. Whereas if you work on the shame, you will find that God also deals with the guilt. So whether you've found the distinctions today helpful or not, it's my prayer that each one of us will have an encouragement to work on this so that guilt and shame do not plague us, but we have a real freedom in Christ and a freedom in life. And the last thing I'd like to say today is I've focused on our vertical relationship with God, being free from guilt and shame, where key is the forgiveness. However, this is only part of the story, for being free from guilt and shame also means us working on our horizontal relationships. See, Jesus said, if you don't forgive others, I will not forgive you. And so, one of the things to be free of guilt and shame is that we have to learn to forgive others. And next week, we're going to pick up on this. Next week, we're going to focus and continue on this theme of guilt and shame. But we're going to look about how we can be free from guilt and shame when it comes to our relationships with others. And in particular, for those folk that have shame transferred onto them by someone else. I mean, how do you deal with that if you're the innocent party, but you still feel weighed down by shame? We're going to look at that next week. This is a sermon in two halves of which we have looked at Freedom from guilt and shame when it comes to our Heavenly Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, each one of us has wrestled with guilt and shame at some time in our lives, and some of us are just weighed down with that even now. And we pray that your Spirit will move amongst us and heal us as we look to Christ, who bore our guilt and carries our shame. We pray that each one of us here today will have an increase ongoing freedom in this area. May each one of us declare with joy that we are your child, greatly loved, accepted, and wonderfully forgiven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.